Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 26, 2018, and my guest is Dr. David Meltzer. He is the Fannie L. Pritzker Professor of Medicine and Chief of the Section of Hospital Medicine and Director of the Center for Health and the Social Sciences at the University of Chicago. And he is affiliated faculty at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and the Department of Economics. He also has a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Chicago. David, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks so much for having me. So I found out about you from a New York Times Sunday Magazine article by Kim Tingley in May of 2018 that was extremely uh, provocative, and we'll link to that article. It's about the importance of the doctor-patient relationship and continuity of care, the importance of patients being seen regularly by the same doctor, even when they were in the hospital and being in, in something of a crisis situation, an acute situation. And the article mentioned your attempts to try to actually quantify and measure uh, the benefits of letting patients continue to see their own doctor once they're in the hospital. Uh, now, as background for understanding your research, I want to back up and talk, as you do in your work, about the phenomenon of how hospitals have changed and, and what a hospitalist is and how that has changed in recent years in terms of hospital practice. So give us some of that background, please. Sure. Um, so, so hospitalists are doctors who specialize in inpatient care. Um, and it was an idea that um, got that name in the mid-1990s with an article published by Bob Wachter and Lee Goldman in New England Journal of Medicine. And the, the hospitalist model is a change from what's been the historical model in the U.S. for general medical care, where people typically had a primary care doctor who would see them in clinic for most of their needs over over time. And then when they got sick enough that they needed to be hospitalized, that primary care doctor would also care for them in the hospital. Um, traditionally, the way primary care doctors did this is that they reserved their mornings or a part of their mornings to see patients in the hospital, and they'd see their own patients in the hospital during that time. And then um, when they were done seeing those patients, they'd go over to their office and, and see patients um, in the afternoon in their office. And um, that changed with the growth of the hospitalist movement, where the hospital care increasingly was provided by a different doctor, a doctor who just saw patients in the hospital. Um, when, that, when that model got started, the, the argument one heard primarily about why it was growing is that, is that hospitalists would do a better job, that by um, being in the hospital all the time, they could be more present um, to provide the care that patients really needed, and um, they would gain expertise in it because they they did more of it. And so um, the they'd model save, they'd save travel time. Obviously, there'd be there's less of a burden on a on the the uh, other the primary care physician of the patient. Well. That, that's true, but that's not what people said about it. <laughs> what, okay. what people said at the time was... Um, specialization. Was, was really, yeah, specialization. They, 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 they do more of it, therefore they do it better, they're going to get better outcomes, that, that sort of thing. And, um, you know, that, that hypothesis was studied, and I would say over time there's been some evidence assembled that hospitalists can decrease length of stay a little bit, maybe improve outcomes a little bit. But I, I would say that the big picture of that literature is that hospitalists are not game changers, not producing fundamental changes in um, hospital outcomes or resource utilization, although I, I do think there are some benefits. And this this sort of absence of absolutely compelling benefits made me wonder why it was hospitalists really grew. Is, was it that maybe there, there were such benefits? Maybe people believed there were such benefits and adopted it for that reason. That certainly may be the case. Um, but there was a, another theory that um, 
sort of came to me as I was thinking about this from an economic perspective. And you sort of started to allude to it with your, your comments. And the, the theory was that hospitalists grew, not really because it was better for patients per se, but just because the old primary care model um, declined, um, not not because it wasn't um you know, better better for, for patients, but because it just was no longer economical for doctors to reserve their mornings to see patients in the hospital. And, and the reason for that wasn't that there weren't um, um, just as many patients being hospitalized, but instead that the people who were coming to primary care clinics in general were healthier and healthier. And so those doctors could spend all day in clinic seeing lots and lots of patients and be very busy, but almost never have anyone in the hospital. And so the increasing ambulatory volume compared to um, a sort of stable hospital volume really pushed primary care doctors to um, take up, in a sense, the offer of other doctors willing to provide hospital care to take that off their hands. So that's what we, we call the ambulatory economics model of, of hospitalist growth. And we um, wrote an economics working paper about it and actually tested the theory with data on which primary care doctors decided to give up their patients to hospitalists. And, and what we found is that sort of all the different elements of our theory were, were supported, that primary care doctors were more likely to give up their, their patients to hospitalists as um, they had um, a lower likelihood of having each patient admitted to the hospital, as they worked fewer hours during the day, as it became easier to just use technology to call the hospital as opposed to um, going in going in yourself and um, and also as transportation costs rose um, traffic increased hospitals got bigger parking lots got bigger all, all that sort of stuff and and so from that research we came to the conclusion that that hospitalists grew really not because it was better for patients perhaps as much that it was just more expeditious for for primary care doctors to turn over the hospitalist work to, to hospitalists. So in a that, normal, that's, like I say, in a normal market, the benefits to the primary care physicians through competition might be passed on into the, to the customer in the form of lower prices so that if doctors really found it less efficient to make those trips and Maybe they didn't get to see their patients. That that through competition would they'd be forced to share some of the savings with the patients. Of course, that's not the way our healthcare market works. So it just kind of yeah. happened. Yeah, and I mean, I think one thing I'll, I'll I'll just point out is that if you look at things like concierge medicine, which are very market driven approaches to medical care, um, it's not uncommon at all that a concierge physician will do exactly the old job that they'll see you in clinic, they'll see you in the hospital, they'll see you wherever it is you want them to, um, almost. Explain, for people who don't know, ex explain what, some people might think a concierge physician is somebody you find at the hotel, but uh, talk about what that model is for people who, aren't, who haven't experienced it. It's also sometimes called sort of direct primary care, and I think there are a couple of different flavors of it, but I would say that the gist of it is that the, um, the patient is paying out of pocket for the doctor's care. They often are paying a monthly retainer. It may well be that having um, paid that sort of retainer, there's no fee for additional care, or there may be fees in addition based on the care provided. But I would say that the general idea is that these doctors are um, charging higher prices, uh, typically directly to the patient, and exchange for that providing greater degrees of access. They're also coordinating care when there's a complication that the concierge doctor doesn't doesn't have to deal, doesn't know how to deal with a specialist, right? They're going to find you the sure. specialist, help you get access to the specialist. Sure. And, sure. and as you say, keep an eye on you through the process. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, 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 they hopefully are, are doing whatever you need, whether that is direct care themselves or facilitating connections to other doctors or um, helping connect your, your care team. Um, basically, what, what you need is, is what they hope to give you. You know, David, I like to joke when people ask if I'm uh, a doctor. 
I say I am because I have a PhD in economics. I say I am, but not the kind that helps people, which is not my <laughs> joke. It's a friend of mine's. But, but, I, but I will say that I have a couple of friends who I have the concierge relationship with. I don't pay them. They're just buddies of mine in my synagogue where when I am anxious about something, I say, is this a problem? They say, no, you're fine. And that is an, an immensely valuable service <laughs> that, that I assume a concierge doctor is actually doing. For my oh, yeah. for my friends, you know, I want to say, you know, I could do that too. That that's the level of medicine that I am capable of delivering. Oh no, you're fine, but I, I, I do think well, it's interesting well, how eager people are to be reassured that it's nothing serious. Sure, sure, but I, I'm not sure a good concierge medicine would, physician would just reassure you all the time. Hopefully, yeah, well, I, I get uh, what I pay uh, for. These, these are these are unpaid <laughs> concierges. They're they're my buddies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and anyway, I I, I think. Uh, I think the point is um, sustained attention is a, is a good thing, and sustained attention from someone who actually knows what they're doing is even better. Yeah, good point. I, I accept that. So, yeah. so carry on. So the you started to wonder whether this system was – what its implications were and whether this loss of yeah. the continuity was, was meaningful or in terms of outcomes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I mean intuitively um, – you know, what is it that you give up? You give up the, the continuing relationship between the doctor and the patient. That has a bunch of elements to it. There's, there's, there's the knowledge that the, the doctor and the patient have of each other, including, you know, of the medical history and, and their interactions with each other. There's hopefully their ability to communicate better. Um, um, there's their trust um, which um, comes partially from just knowing each other, but partially from the continuing relationship and the understanding that um, you're going to see each other again and again and again. And then there's interpersonal relationship, which um, you know doesn't always get better when you know someone for longer. Um, yep. But um, but if it's getting worse, it's presumably going to cause you to change and eventually gravitate towards someone with whom you really have that. So, um, you know, there are all those elements of the doctor-patient relationship. I'm sure there are others. Um, those certainly have been documented well in the literature. There's also um, a wonderful observational and quantitative literature showing things like lower health care costs when you've had the same doctor for a long period of time, the avoidance of unnecessary care at the end of life, when you're cared for by a doctor who, who really knows you. Those are observational studies. There are even a few experimental studies um, where people were um, randomized or effectively randomized to have continuity or, or discontinuity in um, the relationship with their doctor. And, um, and in those studies, um, there's, there's um, you know, very clear evidence that that continuity has... Um, really improved outcomes, decreased hospitalization, and, and so on. So there's lots of reasons to believe that this disruption of inpatient and outpatient, between inpatient and outpatient care could indeed be costly. And, and, and that, I, I think, was well understood early on by the leaders, early leaders of the hospitalist movement. And accordingly, one of the consequences of, of the hospitalist movement has been a greater appreciation of the need to improve handoffs and of strategies for, for doing that. But, um, you know, taking a problem and trying to reduce its harm is not the same thing as eliminating the problem, um, both because you often don't completely eliminate those things um, and, and, and also um, because the interventions themselves are often costly. And if you look at the literature that um, looks at care coordination interventions, you find some work, some don't work so well. It's extremely difficult perhaps impossible to point to an intervention that consistently mitigates or eliminates the, the problems of discontinuity and actually succeeds in, in, in saving money. So um, there, are, um, there is a real challenge that comes from discontinuity, and thinking about ways to mitigate it is, is an important problem. A listener, EconTalk listeners, a physician wrote me by chance earlier this week or last week, I can't remember, and mentioned his um, hatred of electronic medical records. And in his case, 
what he what he disliked was how it changed his interaction with the patient. Instead of looking at the patient's eyes, face, body language, uh, he found himself looking at a screen. Uh, it it tended to, I think, the way I would put it is narrow the level of response and information he was trans he was keeping about the patient because things tended to f- fill in a form rather than be more freestyle. Yeah. But ironically, what struck me when I when when he wrote me is that the whole one of the ideas of of electronic medical records is to improve continuity. The idea would be that a new doctor, true, they haven't chatted about their their kids maybe with the patient, the doctor, but you at least have quote all the information. You, you'd, you'd know things about their to be trivial their allergies, their medications, possible uh, treatments they were undergoing that might interact negatively with things you might propose. And so, in theory, the whole idea of the electronic medical record was is to help make that handoff more effective. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think all those things are true to some degree, and the the real question is how you how you weigh them against each other in in various contexts. You know, um, whether you're a doctor or a patient, if you've been in a clinic recently, you've you've experienced the changes that take place with. Um, the presence of an electronic health record. Um, there's there's more information more readily available, but it requires um, the attention to some and sometimes to a lot of degree of the, the clinician. That means more of your time is spent looking at the screen and less of your time is spent looking at the person. Um, you know, I think doctors are aware of this challenge and I suspect the vast majority try to find a good balance between the two. Um, some clinic rooms are better set up than others so that you can look at the screen and, and look at the person. But truth be told, um, electronic re- health records typically still take more time to complete um, the documentation of the visit than did the old approach of scribbling something on a piece of paper. Um, there are Surely some advantages of that. It's easier to find allergies. The previous medical history is probably recorded perhaps in a, in a um, more organized way. But the electronic health record can be, you know, thousands of screens long and there's no time to look through all of them. Um, and... Um, so information gets lost, and um, and and it, it takes a lot of time for the doctor and out of the encounter, which means that other things presumably don't happen, in, including, you know, looking the patient in the eye and noticing that you know their facial expression is just a little different than it might be otherwise, or the the sort of awkward pause at the end of a visit when the doctor thinks the visit is done and somehow the patient isn't quite getting up. (laughs) Something they're afraid afraid of or embarrassed. Yeah, there's something else to be said that that hadn't been said. So, uh, you know, over time, presumably, electronic health records will get more efficient. We'll learn what's, what's, you know, more valuable and what's less valuable. But um, these are not these are not costless interventions. I I think there was a really interesting point made in the New York Times article by Kim that I thought was really really thoughtful, and and what she highlighted in it was that um, electronic health records are in a way a tool that that is designed to promote communication between doctors, and and when we require the uh, adoption of electronic health records. Um, we are requiring something for which the purpose is fundamentally to lower the cost of specialization and division, as opposed to, for example, you know, lowering the cost of continuity or promoting um, continuity and relationships. And, and I mean, it's, it's a really interesting thought. It reminds me of kind of the debate about the subsidies for public transportation, you know, why is it that the riders of public transportation shouldn't, um, you know, bear all the costs of that? Why should there be a public subsidy there? And, you know, the, the, the interesting um, 
you know, counterpoint that, of course, the costs of roads aren't really paid by drivers, right? <laughs> and, and so it, it, it's, a, it's a great reminder that when we make policy decisions, uh, we, you know, may perhaps not explicitly but implicitly subsidize certain ways of organizing care. And, and, um, and I think there is a significant degree to which our, um, our decision to subsidize the electronic health record, to require that, is predicated on a belief that um, sort of specialization is valuable, that medicine can be broken down into algorithms, um, that, that there are formulas for these things. Um, and I, I, I fully believe that there are measurable things that electronic health records can help us with. But I, I also believe there are things that, um, you know, we are a very, very, very far away from having medical records really help us with, like, like understanding the, 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 the mood and the affect of the other human being that we're sitting there in the room with. That's an incredible example of the complexity and the um, subtle and non-measurable things that can make a difference, which really I see your work as being part of. It, this, com- this piece of the conversation is related to an earlier episode we did with um, Jerry Mueller on the tyranny of metrics and how yeah. our desire to measure things, which is a good desire, uh, leads sometimes to a form of what Hayek called scientism. Uh, it's really fake science. It looks scientific. And, and I also assume there's a temptation for there to be this a creep in the scope of what's gathered in the electronic health record that it doesn't stay static and necessarily doesn't always expand in the direction that's always uh, desirable, but it probably doesn't stay still. And more yeah. time gets taken up because of a, yeah. an idea that this or that will lead to a better outcome, but might not. And Yeah. Well, so and, and let me sort of maybe anticipate a place where we'll head at some point, but I think it's a, it's a good moment to talk about it, which is that, you know, it's a fact that the vast majority of, of money in healthcare is spent on a very small fraction of the population and that most 80, people, 20 roughly, um, you know, different, different measures, different things, but yeah, something like that is, is, is about right. And, and I, you know, I go beyond healthcare expenditures to say that the vast majority of us, are pretty well the vast majority of the time, and yet, um, um, you know, there are there are moments for for you know all of us, and 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 often extended moments for some of us where people are really sick and have really complex care, and you know, often what makes that care complex is the interaction of myriad forces. Um, it's not just that you have heart disease, but you have lung disease and, and you're depressed and you've just gotten divorced and you've lost your insurance. Um, I mean, it's, it's a million interacting things that are incredibly difficult to put in formulas. And so what do electronic health records do? They are typically pretty good at taking formulaic approaches to fairly straightforward things. And um, you know, that's, that's not a completely fair characterization, but, but I, would, I would argue that sort of by and large, the more complex things get, the harder it is for electronic records to really make them formulaic. Well, and uh, so, so the consequence of this ultimately is that when you prioritize the things that electronic health records can do, you often prioritize things that are not necessarily geared towards where the greatest human suffering is, where the greatest costs are. Um, that's not to mean that it isn't good to remind people to get a pap smear um, or a mammogram, but um, those decisions are very unlikely to be the fundamental drivers of health outcomes and, and costs. Hey, you look where you look where you look for the lost keys under the light under the lamppost and. You know, without we won't go into this, but it you'll appreciate this. It it, it reminds me of, of a macro model of the economy with just a few simple equations. We can capture most of it, and of course you can, and, and especially when things are going well. That's the irony of it. It's really good at predicting interest rates uh, 
when the economy tomorrow is going to be like it was yesterday. When it's not, it doesn't work so well, and we don't really understand the complexity fully of the causal relationships. And the body reminds me a lot of the economy, um, <laughs> as listeners know. So you then decided – I think there had been one other study at least that you referenced from the Veterans Administration. But you, you had this, this vision, uh, which is crazy, of trying to create a randomized control trial, a, a full-fledged experiment that would allow a comparison between uh, patients who have continuous care, who see the same doctor once they're in the hospital, versus those who don't. And these are of high-risk patients. So talk about the population and how you designed the, the study. Yeah, well, even before that, let me sort of describe a little bit the rationale behind the model. I mean, we've already sort of talked about this idea that continuity is a good thing. But as I, as I, I mentioned, the, the, the problem we had recognized was that it just wasn't practical for primary care doctors to do this old job because they didn't have enough patients in the hospital on a daily basis. So as we came to understand that, what we realized was that there was a solution. And the solution was that if we could increase the rate at which patients were hospitalized for a doctor, um, it might still make sense for them to do that old job, providing continuity in and out of the hospital. Now, of course, you can't just do that by increasing the rate of hospitalization to entertain doctors. That would not be a recipe for good or efficient care. Or poisoning oh, patients to increase right, the hospital right, visits. Right, Bad idea. Um, so, um, but what we realized is that you could prospectively identify those patients who were likely to be hospitalized and then um, have a set of doctors who focus their practice only on patients at high risk of hospitalization. So they could have a, a, a panel size, a, a group of patients for whom they were responsible that was small enough that they could provide them with all the ambulatory care they needed while only having clinic in the afternoons and yet have um, those patients be in the hospital enough that it made sense for the doctor to reserve their mornings to see those patients in the hospital. So, so basically... You could have a set of doctors who practice medicine the old way and continuity in and out of the hospital and for whom it's, it's economically logical to continue to do that um, because they only see patients at high risk of hospitalization. It's so, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a really neat idea that came straight out of good old uh, microeconomic theory, uh, uh, essentially examining uh, the budget constraints for of uh, time budget constraints for doctors practicing in the old model and um, um, inpatient and outpatient medicine combined and uh, doctors dividing up the tasks. So um, did, did you have to recruit the doctors to be yeah, willing so, to do this in, yeah. in this unusual way? So, so what happened is I wrote the, the economic theory paper, came up with the idea, and then the Affordable Care Act was passed. And... Um, um, you know, Which you were not the, consulted on. Go figure. Uh, <laughs> not, not in particular. Um, but, um, um, but, but as part of it, they created the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, um, um, you know, which was supposed to figure out what works in healthcare. How do you actually make it better? And, um, you know, I had an experience both as an economist and researcher, but also as a physician and a physician who had taken on clinical leadership responsibilities running our hospitalist group. And so I thought it might be possible to hire a bunch of doctors, um, sort of connect them with our hospitalist group, and actually build this model at the University of Chicago. So when the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation was created and they had their first round of innovation awards, we applied and we were very fortunate to be funded. Um, and given money to actually start this program um, at the UFC, I, at the University of Chicago, I, I hired um, five doctors who would do this, um, sort of gradually building up the group from two to three to four to five. And um, uh, CMMI allowed us to, to establish this intervention and also to um, um, do a randomized trial as part of that. Um, so we had, in the end, about 2,000 patients, 1,000 
in the intervention group and 1,000 in the control group. Um, and that started in November of 2012 um, and uh, took us until, I think, um, June of 2016 to randomize the, the 2,000 patients. And we're now in the process of analyzing the, the data from following those patients um, you know, over at least a year, but in some cases now, now several years. What do you mean it took four years to, quote, randomize the patients? Well, we had to find people who were willing to be in the study. Um, it was a randomized trial. We consent people, ask their approval before they, they, they enter it. Um, in order to enter the study, um, they had to meet certain criteria, like they had to be insured by Medicare. Um, they had to have been hospitalized once in the past year, which is how we identified a group of people who um, um, were at high enough risk of hospitalization or, or have some other markers that suggest that they were at high risk of, or higher risk of hospitalization. Um, and, and, you know, they, they had to be willing in principle to give up their primary care doctor if they were randomized to the, the intervention because otherwise it really wouldn't have made sense to include them. Um, for the patients who were randomized to the intervention, you know, they were given that option um, to take that new comprehensive care physician as their primary care doctor. For the patients who were randomized not to have that option of having a comprehensive care physician, we offered them help to find a new doctor because um, we didn't want to just compare our outcomes or patient experience to the outcomes and patient experience of people who were unhappy with their doctor. Um, that wouldn't have been a very interesting study. So I'm confused. The, we've got 2,000 patients. We're going to put 1,000, we hope, in the innovation yeah. group and 1,000 in the control group. The innovation group, I assume, right. are going to have the continuity. Right. I don't understand what it means that they had to give up their primary care doctor. I thought their primary care doctor was going to be their continuity doctor. How did, so explain no, explain no. how it so, works. Okay, so so example, you, you come to the emergency room or you come into the hospital and and um, you're admitted. And and we approach you and say, um, we have this new program where you can have a, 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 a primary care doctor who will care for you both in, in clinic and in the hospital. Um, we're studying it through a, a study. So we can't guarantee that if you're interested in joining this study, you will get a doctor who will do that. But you'll have a 50% chance of getting a doctor like that. I got and, it. And that's going to be and, different than their regular primary care doctor. Right. That they've and, had and so that, far. Right. If they've even had one. Some people won't have had one. But if they have had one and they're willing to enter the, the study, um, you might imagine that they're not very happy with that person, yep. right? Good point. And, and so we don't want to compare our outcomes to, unhappy the, outcome, to, the, to the outcomes of, of patients who are unhappy with their doctors. So we tell the patient that if you're not randomized to the intervention group, um, so that instead you're randomized to the control group, you can keep your primary care doctor if you want, or will um, help you find another one that hopefully you'd be happy with. Brilliant. Okay. Very clever. So that's what you did over the 2012 to 2016 period. Then you got yeah. your sample. And, yeah. and now two years have passed approximately or a year and a bit. And yeah. you've got some preliminary results that you're allowed to share. So tell us what you found so far. Yeah, so um, you know, we're, we're still doing the analyses, but we've presented some of the results publicly, and that's what I can talk about. Um, we, we organized our evaluation around what's sometimes called the, the triple aim, um, sort of better, better patient experience of care, better health outcomes, and um, lower utilization costs. And um, for patient experience, the primary measure that we've looked at is how the, um, the patients rate the quality of care that they get from their doctor. And, and the bottom line is that um, the um, people in the control group, um, well, the people in both groups when they started were pretty unhappy with their doctors, like at the 20th percentile nationally. The people in the control group actually went up to about the 80th percentile. 
And and we think that's because we help get them, yeah. you know, a doctor they like, or at least, you know, didn't dislike. And and then the intervention group went up to the 95th percentile in patient satisfaction. So we thought that was a really big a really big success, and and we think that's that's important to patients. Of course, one of the um, one of the issues there, which I'm sure you're worried about, is that when I'm rating my doctor, who I've known for a while and is the same doctor all the time, I might feel bad about saying something negative about them. So yeah. you're asking them on a scale of one to five? What's one, the, to ten, one, one to ten. One to, one to ten. And, and uh, the vast majority of people give their doctors nine or ten, you know, even, even when they're not all that happy. So um, there's a lot of top coding, um, but nevertheless, we found that our, our CCP doctors did better. Um, we didn't find... CCP stands for... That's the comprehensive care physician. Um, the, the continuity, continuity in and out of... Exactly. And then in terms of health status measures, we didn't find differences in general um, self-rated health status. Um, but we did find statistically significant improvements in self-rated mental health status. Yep. And um, lots of reasons to believe that that's related to these stronger relationships and, 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 and that sort of thing. And then finally, um, we looked at um, hospitalization, which is um, the biggest driver of costs in this population. And, and we found um, what looks like about a 20% reduction in hospitalization rates out to a year, which is huge and, and probably translates to savings of several thousand dollars um, per patient per year, which is just an immensely large amount of saving. Yeah, 20% um, of any medical cost is going to be saved. Yeah, a lot of money. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of money. And, um, you know, I think what makes it really notable is that whereas a lot of the care coordination interventions that have been used in many instances require hiring a lot of people um, in order to bridge that care, our model really doesn't require that. In, in fact, all we're really doing is reorganizing care yep. so that you don't need to have as many of these handoffs. And so um, you could call this a lean approach to care coordination. It has gotten rid of um, potentially avoidable, um, um, unnecessary costs of communication. Um, and so um, the fact that it looks like it's you know, reducing hospitalizations a lot, and therefore presumably saving a fair bit of money, while it costs very, very little to um, run this program, and um, you know, it's really just reorganizing care and getting the patients into it. Um, it, it really suggests the the promise of this sort of approach, um, not to the exclusion of other forms of care coordination, but I would argue um, as a, a strategy to um, lessen the need for them um, and perhaps allow those people doing care coordination to focus on the areas where they're really required. Quick question on the med- mental health. How, how is that measured? Self-reported, um, I assume. Yeah, we just asked, and the results I'm describing to you, just sort of self-reported health status. How would you rate your mental health? Excellent, very good, good, fair, poor. A fairly crude measure, but one that's been shown to correlate with other measures of mental health. And we have a lot of other measures of mental health in our data, um, but we, we haven't yet reported on them publicly. So that'll be something to look forward to. Let me, let me just ask a, a more general question about continuity of care and, and how it actually works in practice. So my father uh, in the last year was, was hospitalized for some surgery and uh, cancer surgery. And uh, happy to report he's doing fine. He's on his fourth cancer. He's just uh, he's, he's so far he's beaten all of them, which is glorious. Great. Good, yes. wonderful, and I'm grateful for that. But I was I was with him in his in his um, in his room for you know hours at a time in the aftermath of the surgery. And one thing that struck me uh, was how many doctors and nurses trooped through that room uh, yeah. who were unbelievably specialized and to me pretty ignorant of what was going on in the room. Uh, other than they would some you know they would pick up the chart. There's a thing on the wall, like a, the equivalent of a, a whiteboard with a bunch of uh, scores of various kinds that 
you know, could have been electronically recorded somewhere. I assume they were, but it was interesting that they were on a, on a whiteboard with, with markers. And, um, you know, some of them were, seemed great. I have no idea how competent any of them were, but they varied widely in their ability to reassure my dad that he was doing okay or things he was worried about were important or, more importantly, reassure me, who was sort of acting there as his representative. How would that have – and I counted them at some point. I've forgotten the number. I was just shocked at how many there were. Same with the nurses, the people who gave him you know, minute-to-minute comfort for things that were, he was struggling with in the aftermath of the surgery. You know, there, was, there were nurses who did X and Y and Z and tested him and poked him and brought him other things. And it was just – it seemed like a recipe, and I've read this, of course. It seemed like a recipe for things to go wrong just to, because of the, just the sheer number of people that he was interacting with. And how would that cha- how would that experience change in the story that you would imagine in a different yeah. world? So, I mean, let's take your your dad's case very precisely. Okay, he's he's got a, a, a malignancy in in the hospital. So, um, in in our hospital, he'd probably actually still be on an oncology service. Um, but um, and, and so the main doctors caring for him would probably be oncologists, and there would still probably be tons of doctors coming in and out who, you know, had all the attributes that you described. On the other hand, there'd be a primary care doctor coming in every day and talking to you and him and knowing him and um, able to help translate what all these other doctors were doing or redirect them to some degree if it seems like what they're doing doesn't make sense. Um, um, and then if he gets hosp- and then when he's released from the hospital and goes to clinic, that doctor um, would um, see them and cl- see him in clinic and know what had happened in the hospital. And then the next time he came back to the hospital, that doctor would see him again. Whereas it's very possible that he might be under the care of a completely different oncologist in a next hospitalization. So uh, those would be what I would say would be the minimum changes. Now, you can go further with this sort of model and even eliminate more of the care, uh, of the specialization. You can imagine a specialist being, uh, in essence, a comprehensive care physician, um, seeing the patient in and out of the hospital. And and there are medical specialties, um, I can tell you, in my institution where they do that. They actually take care of the patient, same doctor, in and out of the hospital. So um, there's a, there, there can be those sorts of models, but they're, they're the exception um, rather than the rule. Um, it's also true that um, doctors make lots of decisions about whether or not to consult. And, you know, there's a variety of um, drivers of that decision about whether or not to consult. But... Um, You know, let's say that, you know, uh, uh, the patient, imagine your dad, um, had a rheumatologic condition. And, you know, there was some question as to whether that rheumatologic condition was contributing to some symptom he had or or something like that. Well, if if the doctor caring for him in the hospital is a doctor who doesn't really know him, um, he might well consult a rheumatologist. On the other hand, if the doctor caring for him in the hospital is the same doctor who's been caring for him in in clinic, he may well have seen these same symptoms before, have talked to a rheumatologist already in the past, know that these symptoms are the same old symptoms that have been seen in the past, and and just avoid, you know, at least that part of the visit. So, you know, would would this model get rid of all of that fragmentation? Absolutely not, nor should it. Um, division of labor is a good thing Adam Smith. to a degree. Yep. Uh, yes. Yeah. And this absolutely goes back to Adam Smith, yeah. um, but it can go too far. Yeah. I, I, there's something really beautiful about these specialists trooping through who know an immense amount about their one thing. Uh, but right. there was a point where I remember thinking to myself, who's in charge here? And of course the answer was really me, which is not a good idea. Uh, it's not a bad <laughs> idea, but, but not everybody has a, uh, a son visiting them who knows about trade-offs. So one of the things that's in risk. So one of the things that struck me as strange about the whole experience is that, you know, a specialist would come in. He, the specialist might know something about what the other parts of the body that were, you know, struggling <laughs> in the aftermath of the surgery, and he might have the the EHR to to verify that. But 
each doctor is making their own decision about, oh, yeah, you, you don't need to worry about X. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. If, can I want to ask that other guy, that other sure. person about whether that's a good idea or not? And it just – there was no one in charge. And so what are the minimal benefits of this approach beyond the knowledge of the patient's richer history and habits and, and preexisting conditions is simply someone to help coordinate the decision-making in what's an invariable – complex system of, of how to respond in the aftermath of a traumatic yeah. event. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say, though, that in any hospital, there should at any point in time be a primary physician, and by there I do not mean primary care, but a main physician under whose care you are, and all the other doctors are consulting. So on paper, you know, to the extent it's not the patient or their family in charge, but to the extent there is a doctor in charge, it should always be pretty clear who that is. There are what are called co-management models where sort of the attending of record, for example, might be a hospitalist, but the specialist is really in a lot of ways the person running the show. But when those models exist and they're even marginally functional, there should be very clear rules for communication between those people. So, um, I, you know, I, I think that a model like this should improve that coordination. But, um, but to be clear, that coordination should always exist. Um, and, I'm not, I don't mean to, and I don't mean to suggest it didn't exist in this case. I think his, yeah. his surgeon was, quote, in charge in some, in some paper sense. But yeah. on the ground in that room – on two thirty in the afternoon, when the when the uh, GI guy was there, it was might be different. <laughs> yeah, it it yeah. doesn't as fully doesn't always work as well on paper as it, as it practically does on paper. Absolutely, and and nothing, including the comprehensive care physician model, is perfect. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So this is very interesting, and of course, there's the potential that mental health results could actually have health results beyond just it's nice that. They were more satisfied with their doctor and in their general well-being. Uh, it's a short uh, study so far. We don't know what the longer effects will be, but it sounds yeah. very promising. Absolutely. Great. So uh, congrats, and we look forward to the next chapter. We'll keep uh, listeners posted on that. I want to shift gears, uh, and I want you to put on your economist hat for a minute. Uh, my, my son needed an MRI recently. It's great when econ talk is you know a family history of the Roberts uh, medical issues. So sometimes it it devolves into that. So my son needed an MRI recently, and um, he's on my health care still. And and I said, well, you know, sh- we have a high deductible. And I said, shop around. So we called one place, and they said eight thousand dollars. I said that seems like a lot. I said call a second one, and the second place said eh, it'll be three to four thousand. I said, that still seems remarkably high. I said, let's do – I actually called a doctor I know who's a concierge doctor. I said, where would you send him for an MRI? And she, she gave me the recommendation, and they said, oh, wait, we'll, we'll char- if you pay out of pocket, we'll, we'll charge $500. So mm-hmm. that was that – was, that's startling. It's not a new finding. I'm not, I'm not uh, uncovering anything not, that everyone – everyone knows this, that, that pricing in, the, in healthcare is crazy. But it, it just—it's such a dramatic example of how the lack of price transparency, the lack of out-of-pocket payment, and the lack of competition because of those things has created this crazy quilt of, of pricing, and presumably of quality. Although in this case, I suspect they were all pretty much the same. Um, what are your thoughts as as an economist and one trained at the University of Chicago, where at least when I, I think I was there a little before you, but we, we were really big on competition. A lot of people don't like competition in medical care. They, it scares them. What are your thoughts now having having a PhD in, in economics and being in the field of medical, of, of medicine? Well, um, you know, I think what, what theory says is that competition in, in most instances, in the, the absence of things like insurance, is going to improve quality and, and, and lower costs. And, um, and, and by and large, I, I agree with that. Um, you can tell other stories in healthcare, you know, where when people are insured, 
there's a, a, a tendency for organizations to kind of compete on quality and um, to promote greater utilization rather than less. Um, so you can tell other stories. Um, but my, my general belief is that more transparency is a good thing and that more competition is a good thing too um, in healthcare. Um, now, there are challenges. Um, you know, one challenge is the quality of the information. Sure. Um, um, another, another challenge is sort of the price system, um, which um, is, you know, as you know well, um, you know, not, not all that rational from a whole variety of, of, of viewpoints. And that makes um, competition particularly complicated. I also think it's, it's really important to recognize the connectedness of so many different parts of healthcare. Um, you know, a, a, a diagnostic service is not that easy to unbundle from a therapeutic service. Quality is different, is difficult to assess. Um, also recognize that um, risk is, is a meaningful experience um, and that, um, you know, healthcare is the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. Um, um, High deductible plans are um, you know, a significant problem um, with respect to um, risk for patients of economic costs. Yep. They're also becoming a, an increasing concern for um, healthcare um, providers um, with people not being paid. Um, you know, there's there are laws in the United States, like you know, EMTALA in particular, which says that if you go to the emergency room. At, you know, they have to treat you if it's an emergency, regardless of, of payment. Um, I, I, I frankly like living in a country where that's um, going to be the case, that people get um, care in an emergency, whether they can pay for it um, or not. But I also recognize that, that that's um, a challenge um, economically. And um, it's interesting. So... Look, what's, what's the ideal world? The ideal world from an economist's viewpoint is that we're all um, super informed and understand exactly what we're buying at every moment or have people we pay to help us figure that out, um, that information flows costlessly, that we all have enough money in the bank to be able to handle risk, um, and, um, um, and, and so we bear the costs, the decisions that we make. Um, you know, we're very far from almost every one of those things. And uh, well, let me just, just add one, one more thing. You know, there's this kind of, um, you know, theorem of the second best, right, which says that if you've got um, a market inefficiency in the context of other market inefficiencies, there is no guarantee that eliminating one market inefficiency will improve welfare. And, and our problem is we have a whole pile of market failures here. And so um, uh, there is, in my mind, not a strong theoretical justification for um, simple market-oriented interventions in healthcare without their empirical analysis. In other words... You can theorize all you want about any unidimensional simple fix in healthcare that moves one towards um, some idealized market model. But the reality is, the only way you know if it works is to study it. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, I'm more worked up over the fact that the default is to always move away from markets, it seems to me. And I'll, I'll, I'll phrase it a different way. I'll phrase it a different way. So this, 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 is, um, this is not as harsh as it sounds. So you found something that has potential to have some significant savings. And my response to that is, who cares? And I don't mean that as a, as a, a snarky question. I mean it as a, a statement of the problem that our healthcare system has. That So who's going to have the incentive to adopt, let's say it's true, that the step yeah. in the direction that you've hypothesized is a correct one. It's one yes. experiment. We know that 
not all randomized control trials generalize. Sure. But it's what we got. <laughs> but let's say let's say it turns out to be true. So you know, like and, many, and, yeah. you know, like so, like many other um, problems in the healthcare market, where you know, I've had recently had Vincent Rashkumar on the program talking about the price of um, multiple myeloma drugs and how a, a, a tiny increase in efficacy, like extends life on average two months, leads to a remarkably large increase in out in in expenditure. Because no one really has the incentive to capture that savings, yeah. and the, the 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 gains uh, are small relative to the cost that normally would never be done, but yeah. they're done because nobody cares. There's no yeah, incentive yeah. in the so, system to take to take steps that are so, making it better. Yeah, so I think I well, who who benefits from this? First of all, I'd argue the patients who are rolling benefit from it. Okay, so that's a really good start. Agreed. Okay. Yeah. So they they would be interested. Yep. Now, who, you know, they they don't get that offered to them unless you know someone's willing to take these jobs, and uh, people aren't going to take these jobs presumably unless um, unless you know the right conditions are made for them to do that. So, um, you know, who's gonna who's gonna benefit? Well, I mean, Medicare is going to spend less money. That presumably is attractive to Congress. And I would hope that, um, and, and, and the executive branch and our federal government in general. So um, I, I would hope that Medicare would see an intervention that seems promising and, and want to try it out. And in fact, um, you know, we've sent in a proposal to Medicare for what's called a physician-focused payment model. And they're reviewing that proposal now. And um, we hope that within a couple of months, they'll um, give it a formal public review and make a judgment about it. And if they decide it's sufficiently promising the way we've proposed it, um, actually adopt a payment model that would, they would test and that could conceivably you know, produce savings for Medicare while also improving patient outcomes. Now, the, the nature of that model is to provide some um, very modest payments to doctors who reorganize their practices to try to encourage this sort of um, model of care. But some of those incentives are already existing within accountable care organizations or others. So we kind of view this payment as sort of a nudge that pushes that ahead a little more um, and lets us test whether this works. And um, and we think that if it's proven to work, then... Um, in fact, um, you know, those nudges may need to be even, can be even smaller over time. So, uh, you know, are there people who might not like this? Well, Hospitalists you know. Hospitalists are the first well, group that comes to mind. Actually, actually, you know, it's interesting because who's better suited to do this work than a hospital? Yeah, it could be. <laughs> you know, I, and in fact, most of the doctors who do this are hospitalists. And I'll tell you honestly, you might imagine that the hospitalist community has been hostile, but that, that really has not been my experience. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, um, you know, even even primary care doctors, I mean, I think there are some doctors who, who hear about this model and they feel like maybe the model is going to push them out of providing inpatient care. But the answer really is no. In fact, what we've been doing is trying to help primary care doctors who want to sustain inpatient practices um, to do this. So, um, no, I think there's hope, but David, don't misunderstand yeah. me. I think yeah. this, you happen to have stumbled on or, or designed, I don't know how much of it was serendipitous. You, you found an improvement that could easily be adopted. Uh, and, yeah. or, but, but in general, yeah. but, they, but I agree. In general, there are very strong, powerful forces in healthcare that make it difficult to make change. I mean, even in this model, there are challenges. We have, um, you know, a reimbursement model for risk that doesn't do probably a particularly good job of reimbursing for the sickest patients. Like there are there are structural challenges that one has to deal with, and we've tried to design a payment model that um, addresses some of those. There's there's inertia, there's fear of change. Um, you know, there there certainly could be hospitals that look at this and worry it's gonna you know, decrease the number of patients in their beds and their, yep. their, they're going to make decrease. their numbers and then their investors. Yeah. But, but then other hospitals are already taking risk and recognize that their long-term value to, you know, payers, whether private or public is in, and in patients is to improving health and, and increasing value. So, um, 
you know, there's the, the short run and the long run. Um, I think in the long run, the alignment's pretty good. I think in the short run, there are things to be proven and tested and, and figured out. Um, but you, know, you are right. I mean, there are tremendous entrenched interests in healthcare. And so um, interventions that produce social value have to not only produce social value, but figure out how to overcome the potential resistance of a range of parties that have the ability to make that intervention not be implemented, even when on net there is benefit. Extremely, um, and- extremely well said. Very elegant. Beautiful. Well, let's close with, a, if I might, a personal question. Um, I, I, I'm ashamed to say this. I can't say this authoritatively, and I should be able to, but I think you're the first MD-PhD that I've had as a guest. I've had a lot of economics PhDs, obviously, a lot of economists, and I've had a reasonable number of doctors on the program. I think you're the first one. I apologize to any guests in the past that I've missed or not thinking of. Um, why did you do that? It's an incredibly expensive uh, investment, obviously, uh, a great deal of fun. Uh, we both had Gary Becker as an advisor. That's just an interesting human experience uh, yeah. that, that that I'm grateful to have had. Uh, but it's ex- incredibly expensive. And I'm just curious if, if you could tell us why you did it and how in your day-to-day practice as a physician, how being an economist helps you or hurts you? What's like? Because yeah. it's unusual. So, so yeah, so, so my, my story about this was that um, I, I was a Yale undergraduate. Um, I, I double majored in economics and in molecular biophysics and biochemistry. Perfect. And um, I had grown up. I grew up in Chicago on the South Side. Um, I was incredibly interested in economics and social science and public policy. Um, and but I also really liked science. My my dad's a biological psychiatrist who studies schizophrenia. So I started medical school. Think I start, I'm sorry. I started college thinking you know I might be interested in chemistry or biology, but also social studies. I took economics. I found I really loved economics. Um, um, I, I took the science. Um, um, what I what I learned was that um, um, I loved the rigor of science of basic science, but I, I actually didn't care how the experiments turned out. <laughs> Um, in contrast, I found economics just constantly stimulating. But at the time, in particular, economics seemed incredibly theoretical. And it felt like a career in economics was going to be all about theory and, and not about applying it to real problems. So I, I knew about MD-PhD programs. And, and at the time, I had thought about sort of using the science um, my, my dad had given me the advice that if, if, you're, if you're interested in science and biomedical science, you should be a doctor rather than a PhD because PhDs have to work for doctors and, and doctors are terrible to work for. So, <laughs> so he, he recommended this, you know, that I think about MD-PhD programs. He, he, I suspect, also knew well that MD-PhD programs were pretty well subsidized by the federal government. But... Um, 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 I, I wondered to myself, could you do an MD, PhD in, in economics? And um, because um, the more standard one is in one of the sciences, it is in the basic sciences. So anyway, I wrote letters all around the U.S. Um, I, I found a, you know, I, my joke about this is kind of a, a third of the places says that's a really stupid idea. A third of the places says, you know, you've got good grades. If you want to do a real PhD in the sciences, you know, please apply to our program. And a third wrote back and said, you know, strange idea, but reasonable, please apply. And the University of Chicago wrote back and said, you know, we have a program. Um, and, and so, um, uh, you know, I only later discovered no one had actually ever been in it. But um, um, anyway, I, 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 I had a wonderful economics teacher at Yale, um, Paul Schultz, who was the son of Ted Schultz, another University of Chicago yep. um, economist. And um, Paul taught me this amazing course in economic demography. And from that, I, I learned all about sort of Chicago economists studying population and health and you know, Gary Becker stuff and you know, the, the whole crew. 
And so um, coming back to Chicago was really sort of a great thing because there were just so many wonderful economists in microeconomics, labor economics, and industrial organization. And I got into medical school on the MD-PhD program, and it was, it was coming home. So um, I, I, I ended up coming to Chicago. And then, and then Gary ended up being my, my thesis chair along with um, other members of the committee, um, Bob Willis, Sherwin Rosen, you know, great folks, and um, an amazing group of people around Chicago in, in that era. I, I, I don't even know how many Nobel laureates taught me economics. Um, but it was, um, um, you know, a wonderful exposure. And, and it's interesting because when I look at the comprehensive care physician work, it is literally the tools that I learned in Gary Becker's microeconomics class that I used when I sat down and tried to sort of figure out the time allocation of doctors. And then that gave me literally looking at those equations, the idea for the comprehensive care physician program. So I, I give an immense amount of credit to them and their way of thinking for um, inspiring the, the, the work that I've done. And of course, it's had a very practical hands-on component to it too. But I think that the, the sort of nugget of, of insight really has come from my, my training as an economist. And, um, you know, we have an MD-PhD program in the social sciences at Chicago now. And we um, have had some amazing graduates who've um, done the MD-PhD like I have and gone on to do, um, you know, incredible work. And, and so there's now quite a few more MD-PhDs um, in economics around the country and around the world, and I think they're, they're making a lot, of, a lot of great contributions. But in the day-to-day practice as a clinician, are there things like the kind of pricing structure or incentives that you see that drive you crazy because you understand uh-huh. their impact? You know, I mean, there there are lots of things um, in um, medical practice and academic medicine that you can recognize as irrational, um, and and I guess you could allow those to drive you crazy. Um, you know, but then there are also on the better days, like really interesting ways of thinking about problems that economic reasoning teaches you, like you know, trading off competing values. Um, 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 organ function as a as a durable good, as an asset that can then be used and transferred into other forms of assets. Um, like you know, when you have a, a patient in the intensive care unit with multi system organ failure, they can have a lot of you know renal capital, but not very much cardiac capital, right? Yeah. And so you can um, do things to um, protect their heart. Um, at the expense of their kidneys um, with the idea that, you know, that that sort of scarce cardiac capital is, is more important. So, I mean, economics is such a powerful way of, of thinking about maximizing objectives subject to constraints. And um, I, mean, I think that's an example of what you were describing earlier, that sort of the body and the, the economy have, have certain similarities and, and the, the tools for for thinking about each are, are complementary. My guest today has been David Meltzer. David, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.